Well, hey, Harlan, how are we doing? Good. Hey, let's, uh, everyone who's here in the room, let's say hi to everyone who's watching on the other side of that camera. Give it up for all of you guys watching online. We're glad that you are connected with us too. Maybe you are, maybe you're at home, maybe you're at work, maybe you're out in the sun, watching this on your phone, whatever it may be at a sports field. We're just glad that you are making some time also just to be with us together and to just be looking forward to what God is going to do today. And I'll echo Dan as well. We've had so many just cool interactions with people who are here at Heartland for the first time, or maybe for the first time in a long time, because the past couple years have, you know, they've been a bit of a ride, right? And so many of you have taken this as an opportunity to maybe uh, reset some rhythms in your life that maybe went, went out the window a little bit over the past couple years. So it's good to be with you. Um, today, as we wrap up this series, I want to ask you a question. If you could ask Jesus any question, what question would you ask him? Give you a second to kind of think about that. If there's one question that you had the ability to ask Jesus, what would it be? Well, we can shout him out. Yeah, right. And and it might be, yeah, it might be that. It might be something that you're wondering. It might be for you something like really that you've always wondered about, like dinosaurs. What's the deal with the dinosaurs? Like where did, what happened to them? Maybe it was, did you really... Did you really create the world in seven days? That's really how it happened. Maybe something kind of scientific that you were trying to wrap your mind around. Maybe it was something a lot more practical, like, Jesus, what's, what's the deal with mosquitoes, and why did you create them? And what purpose do they serve? You know, those and weeds in your lawn and sports fans from Chicago. Like, why in the world did they even... What? I'm sorry, did... Is there a sports fan from Chicago? Uh, you know, it could be anything. Maybe, maybe for you, it actually is a question that's deeply more personal than that. Maybe it's, maybe it's God, why, if you really are God and really are loving and good, why did you allow something to happen in, in my life that made it really, really hard? Or maybe it was something that you really wanted to happen in your life, but for whatever reason, God didn't allow that to be a part of your life. You know, that we all have these questions. And for you, if there was a question that you could ask Jesus that you long to have the answer to, what would that question be? You just think about it and kind of hold on to it for yourself. Here's what I know. Here's what I think, here's what I, think I know. Is that if you had the chance to ask Jesus that question, he probably would not answer it. Now, why do I say that? It's not because he couldn't answer it, he doesn't know the answer to it, or certainly not because he doesn't care about the question that you're asking him. But I say that because in the Gospels, there are 187 questions that people asked Jesus. And do you know out of 187 questions, how many of those Jesus actually answered? Ten? Three. Three questions. Of the 187, he answered three of them. That's less than 2% of the questions that he was asked. So you have less than a 2% chance of Jesus answering the question that you would ask him. On top of that, do you know the number of questions that Jesus himself asked people? There are different people who have tried to count up the number of questions. It kind of depends on what criteria you use and what counts as a question and what doesn't. But all of these people who have attempted to count these all agree that it was well over 300 questions. So think about that. Jesus was asked 187 questions. He himself asked 300 questions. And what it shows us is that Jesus, who we think of as the answer to so many things, actually created a lot more questions than he did answers to things, right? And that's not a very comforting thought. 
And, and if you're uncomfortable with question asking Jesus, you're not the first person. A lot of people, even around Jesus back in his day, were uncomfortable with question asking Jesus. And it may not comfort you, but, but what it tells us is that Jesus knew that questions, as uncomfortable as they are, actually have more power than answers do. This is the way one, one author put it, Martin Coverhaver, in his book, Jesus is the Question. He writes that easy answers can give us a sense of finality. By entertaining questions, God has a chance to change us. Answers can be offered as a conclusion. Questions are an invitation to further reflection. For the most part, answers close and questions open. And it's telling that the word question contains the word quest. That is, a question sends you on a journey and often in search of something valuable. What it tells us is that Jesus' style was not, about, was not about giving advice or giving answers. Jesus wasn't so much about offering you know, platitudes or five-step plans to, to help us make, make sense of whatever of our dilemmas that we might be facing, even though we may wish that he did. Jesus knew that the power of a question was far greater than the power of an answer, that, that questions have this power to be able to provoke uh, discovery, to create understanding to disarm, even in highly defensive situations. A good question can do that. That a good question can actually deepen a relationship and a connection with someone. And that's why Jesus was so willing to resist giving answers and even ask many big questions himself. And so today, maybe there's a question that you have for Jesus, but what I do know is that Jesus has a question for you. And it may be a different question for every single one of us in this room and those of you who are watching online. And so as Dan said, we've been in this short little series called Tell Me Why, where we've been looking at a lot of the questions that, that uh, rise up in the story of Jesus' death and his trial, his death, his, his resurrection. And, and a lot of these big questions come to the surface. And we've been asking them, recognizing them, whether it's Pilate at the, at the, at the trial of Jesus, just looking out above to the crowds and saying, why? Why is it that this man should be crucified? What has he done? Or whether it was Jesus on the cross as he was hanging there with his final breath saying, Jesus, or saying, God, Father, why have you forsaken me? Or last week, the question that we looked at that Dan preached on when the women showed up at the tomb that Easter morning and there was a, an angel there that said, why do you look for the living among the dead? And so today we're wrapping up the series by looking uh, at one more glimpse inside the Easter story and looking at, at a question that shows up there. And so if you would, just imagine that it's 2,000 years ago and you find yourself hanging in Jerusalem in a room with some of Jesus' followers. And I know this is not an easy thing to imagine. And you're thinking, man, wasn't Easter last week and we're still talking about it? And I'm like, just go with me. We, we kind of think Easter's a big deal. So we thought we would give it at least one more, one more week, right? Um, but it can be hard to imagine a couple thousand years ago hanging out with some of Jesus' followers. So, so just as you do, you find yourself in this room. And it's not, it, it's not the ideal situation. It's pretty intense in this room. It's been a few days since anyone has seen Jesus. And the last time you saw Jesus, he was, his dead body was being wrapped in cloths and being placed inside a stone tomb. And outside the tomb had been rolled a giant, a giant stone. And outside that stone had been placed a couple of, of Roman guards to guard the tomb. And so now you're kind of laying low because you're thinking to yourself, if this is what they did to our leader, then what's to stop them from maybe doing, us, doing this to us, to coming after us next? And so you're kind of laying low, yet in the midst of all of this fear, you're also coping with the loss of one of your closest friends. Your leader, 
your Lord. And you're trying to make sense of what happened. You're going back through all the time that you spent with Jesus. You're, you're replaying some of these conversations and trying to figure out what it was that happened. And it's this weighty moment of confusion and sadness and even maybe anger for some people. And so you just imagine all the questions that the people in this room, the followers and friends of Jesus, all the questions that they are wondering, the questions that they wish that they could ask Jesus in this moment if they could. Like, Jesus, what, what just happened? Why did you let them arrest you? Why did you let them kill you? And what are we supposed to do now? And so earlier that morning, a couple of women, um, friends and followers of Jesus, had gone off to the tomb while it was still early. And this was the scene that we looked at last week where they show up there and there was what they believed to be this angel. They found, they found the tomb with, with no Roman guards in front of it, no stone in front of it, and no dead body inside of it. But they found this, this, this person who told them, why do you look for the living among the dead? And they, they got so excited about it that they came and ran back to where you are with everyone. And they were so excited that they, as they shared about this story and what they had found, their, their words were so scattered that it just sounded like nonsense. So one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, Peter, well, he, he runs off really quickly to the tomb and he finds it just the way that the woman had said. And so now you all are trying to make sense of what happened. And some of you believe that maybe the unbelievable actually did happen, that somehow Jesus did rise from the dead. The problem is that there's also rumors circulating around town that some of the followers of Jesus, which may in fact be some of you in this room, went and somehow got into the tomb and stole the body and hid it and perpetuated these rumors that, that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so you all are trying to make sense of all these things, making sense of what it is that you've seen, making sense of what it is that you've heard, making sense of what you hope to be true and also what you fear may not be. And so you just kind of look out the window every now and then, keeping an eye out, listening to the conversations of people from the town as they're walking past wherever this is that you are, trying to make sense of all of these things. This is the scene that Luke creates for us when we pick up the story in chapter 24. And this is what he writes. Inside this tense room, he says that while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking that they had seen a ghost. And he said to them, so why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? And that's the, that's the question I want us to look at is why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? And it's in fact two questions. So I wanna break it down, we'll walk through them individually. This first question, why are you troubled? <laughs> and you're in the room with these other friends and followers of Jesus, and all of a sudden he shows up and he says, why are you troubled? You know, your answer might be as simple as, why do you think, Jesus, right? I mean, for one, you've been gone for a few days with, with no word from you. The last time we saw you, you were actually being wrapped up and placed inside a tomb, and, and that's kind of troubling. We've been grieving, thinking you're gone, trying to figure out life without you, and then, and then out of nowhere, you just appeared, and that's troubling. Just that you, you weren't here, and now you are here. And this is one of those moments where we're invited to kind of use our imaginations of how did this all happen? Because for most of us, we've never been in a situation where somebody wasn't in the room with us, and then all of a sudden they came into the room with us. And I, don't, I have no concept of what this is like. 
the closest thing that I can relate to is this week I was walking down the street and, and all of a sudden a Tesla pulled up behind me and I had no idea until I turned around and all of a sudden it was there. You know, it's like a Tesla or a Prius or, you know, all of you driving around your battery powered, powered cars that have no, no, I drive a truck. So, you know, and it's an old truck and the engine is broke. So, you know, when I'm coming, <laughs> but all of a sudden I turn around, I'm taking my trash out and there's this car that all of a sudden appeared out of nowhere. So Jesus is not there. And now he is there. Like there was, there was no knock on the door. There was no whoosh sound. There was no like, you know, glowing circle, like Dr. Strange from the Avengers that he would use when he would move from one place to another. And when that happened, you knew, oh, someone's about to come into the room from a different dimension. Like, like none of this, just Jesus was not there. And then all of a sudden he appeared. That's troubling. Not to mention this, Jesus, we're troubled because you were dead. And now you're not. That's not just troubling, that's confusing, right? And so it's in that that Jesus asks his second question. He follows up and he says, so why do doubts rise in your minds? And in this moment, the disciples encounter the most far-fetched, unbelievable reality ever, that a, a person that they saw with their own eyes die, undie. And, and that's not the way things work. That things that die typically by the laws of nature stay dead, right? That things that go into tombs don't come out of the tombs. And so Jesus asked this question, and why, why do you doubt? And one of the reasons he asked this is because the disciples have seen dead things come back to life at the hands of Jesus before. This is not the first resurrection that they would have experienced. They've seen things that were in tombs for several days. People who had died walk out of it. But now they're confronted with Jesus coming out of a tomb. And so in this moment, they're trying to come up with a less far-fetched, less unbelievable reason to explain the presence of what seems to be Jesus in their midst. Because that's what we do when we're faced with something that's unbelievable. We all do this. Is we come up with something that feels more believable to make sense of the unbelievable. If you, have a, if you are a parent of a teenager, you do this all the time. When your teenager comes up to you and just wants you to know how much they love you. You're thinking in my mind, this is not believable. There's got to be a more believable reason to explain the unbelievable thing that is happening to me right now. And sure enough, you know, right, they probably wanted something or there was some other motive at work. And so with these disciples, they're trying to come up with a more believable reason. And what they come up with is, is he must be a ghost. Because a ghost would be more believable than a body resurrecting from the dead now walking around. In fact, it was kind of... Ghosts were very believable back in this time and place. And there were customs of how you should, if you ever came across a ghost, how you would interact with them or acknowledge them or not acknowledge them. And so in their mind, they're thinking, okay, a ghost is more believable than a resurrected body. And if Jesus makes a ghost, well, then that makes sense of our doubts. And Jesus, resurrected Jesus, knows that they're thinking this. And talk about troubling. Whenever you're in the presence of someone who knows what you're thinking, that's also kind of troubling, right? And so Jesus, knowing that they're thinking this, he, he kind of brings it out in the open. He calls them out on this, and he says to them in response, he says, look, look at my hands, look at my feet. It is myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Jesus says, look, not a ghost right here. 
And it's this moment that is so poignant that some of the other gospels that record Jesus' life and resurrection, they capture this, and, and one of them create, uh, uh, captures this poignant scene about one of the disciples who has unfortunately been nicknamed Doubting Thomas, right? We, you've heard about Doubting Thomas? And he should really be named like, like Searching Thomas or Curious Thomas or Investigating Thomas or just like the rest of us, Relatable Thomas, because who wouldn't have questions about something coming back to life and wanting to see it for himself, Right? Whether, whether you are a skeptic or whether you are a seasoned believer, we all will have questions about something like this. That, that what this shows us in this scene of Jesus inviting Thomas and the other followers of Jesus to come to him is a reminder that doubt is an invitation to come closer to Jesus, not to push him away. This is something that we believe so deeply in around here. And when doubts happen, that's okay. Because doubt is not a dead end to faith. Doubt is not a verdict that there's no such thing as God or faith. Doubt is actually an invitation to step into a deeper faith, into a deeper experience of who Jesus is inviting you to experience and know him to be. And so it's in this moment that, that the people in the room, after Jesus shows them his hands and his feet, that the people in the room realize this is not a ghost. But look at how Luke describes this. It's this really cool way that Luke words it. He says, they still did not believe it. Why? because of joy and amazement. So now what's keeping them kind of from believing, what's keeping them in their doubts is, is not the, 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 the unbelief, it's, it's, this, it's this joy, it's this wonder, it's this amazement, it's this too good to be true kind of moment that is keeping them from being able to believe it. It's the, the joy and the, the amazement just aren't lining up with the reality that they're experiencing around them. It's, it's what I've heard it feels like when you win the lottery or when you get Wordle in one try. It's like, it's just, it, how did this happen? I can't make sense of this. It's the moment in Castaway when Helen Hunt finds out that Tom Hanks is still alive several years later. And she's trying to make sense of what she knew to be true versus what she's being encountered as truth. And then you find out she married another guy and the rest of the movie's terrible. But like, it's that moment when everything is too good to be true that everything that you're experiencing just doesn't line up with the absurd impossibility of it all. And so Jesus, knowing this, Jesus, the great question asker, he asked everyone in the room one more question to help them make sense of what it is that they're experiencing. And it's the question that I think could be maybe the most important question in this whole passage. And the question shows up like this. It says that while they were still, while they still did not believe because of their joy and amazement, Jesus asks them, do you have anything to eat? And in... <laughs> So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. Let's just pause there for a second. Do you have anything to eat? This is the question that Jesus asks them. They're confused, bewildered. They have a mess of emotions that they've been experiencing for several days. And the question he asked them is, do you have anything to eat? Now, I'm going to defend my statement that I think this is the most important question in the passage for a reason. But before we do, let's just take a moment to ask some of our own questions about why Jesus would ask this question. Do resurrected saviors get hungry? Did, did, did Jesus exert some amount of energy and, and, and nutrients that needed to be replenished by this broiled fish through the act of being resurrected. And not to get too weird, but I'm about to get a little weird. What happens to a broiled fish that is digested by a resurrected person? There are questions all over this, this passage. And the, the, the real reason why Jesus is asking for this fish doesn't have to do with 
any of that. There's two really important reasons. The first one is that Jesus is meeting them in their doubts. By him asking for fish and eating it with them, as odd a request to, as it might seem, Jesus is actually proving to them that he's not a ghost, that he's not a figment of their imagination, but he's actually real. The more important reason I think that Jesus is asking for fish, for a bite to eat, is because of what sharing food in this day would symbolize. That sharing food symbolized community. That sharing a table or sharing a meal or offering your food would, would symbolize the sharing of life, the sharing of joy. For a broken relationship to, to offer your food to someone would symbolize a restoration. It would be a reunion, a mending of what was broken. That's what Jesus is getting at by offering, by asking these people if they have anything to eat. It's saying, hey, do you want to be back in relationship with me? Because think about these disciples. Many of the people in this room had turned their backs on Jesus when they saw him go to the cross. When they were asked about him, they denied that they even knew him. And in, in, in spite of the many times that they pledged to, the, to Jesus before he went to the cross, that they would never, ever give up their loyalty to him, it didn't take much. And many of them were thinking about going back to their old lines of work, going back to their old hometowns, disregarding whatever this past few years had been, giving up so easily. And then Jesus does show up. Can you imagine the guilt and shame that they were maybe feeling in this moment? And so to see Jesus right in front of you, Jesus could have shown up and he could have rebuked him. He could have condemned him. He could have, he could have shamed them for so quickly tossing aside the loyalty that they had pledged to him. But that's not Jesus's style. In fact, if you've ever heard a version of Jesus who made you feel condemned or shamed, that's not the Jesus of these gospels. That Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And so we can rest assured that when Jesus does show up, he doesn't bring with him a rebuke or a condemnation. He brings with him an invitation to come back into relationship with him. Because for Jesus, that was the whole point anyway. So, then Jesus helps them connect all of the dots to see how and why all of this happened. And he kind of lays it out there for him as he's probably eating this fish. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer, will rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And I am going to send you what my Father has promised, speaking of the Holy Spirit. But stay in this city until you have been clothed with that power from on high. So now what do, what do we do with this? Let's kind of fast forward up 2,000 years here and now, Kansas City, you and me. What do we do with this passage? You see, we have three big questions that Jesus asked his followers in his resurrection, each one of them intentional, pivotal to helping them understand the resurrection Jesus, helping them be confronted with the reality of a risen Savior. And as Luke is writing the details so meticulously for every single one of us, he isn't just trying to, to help us see what it was like for these disciples 2,000 years ago. He's also inviting us into the story. He's also wanting us to encounter the resurrected Jesus. And how does he do that? 
How do we do that? By letting Jesus ask us these same three questions too. So that's what I want to do. I just want to ask you and me the same questions that Jesus asked the people who were in the room that day 2,000 years ago. And so just as you think to yourself, Jesus showing up and saying to you, why are you troubled? The resurrected Jesus speaking to you, why are you troubled? And it makes me think of a time earlier in his ministry when Jesus told his followers that in this world you will have trouble. Jesus knew that our default mode in life would be trouble. That we would be troubled by all sorts of things, grief, circumstances, problems that we can't get out of, regret, pressures, stress. That maybe what you feel is is the troubling Reality that there seems to be a world that we live in that is just spinning out of control. See, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And if we're honest, the first part of what he says is a lot more believable sometimes than the second part, isn't it? We can all agree that this world is troubling and that we experience it, but the trouble that we experience makes us feel like Jesus hasn't overcome the world, right? And so Jesus shows up and he asks this question, why are you troubled? The disciples were troubled because they had just grieved the loss of Jesus. And maybe you're facing your own fearful reality. Maybe you're, you're troubled by some grief or loss or hardship. Maybe you're trying to imagine going through some season ahead of you. And you're trying to figure out how to do it. Maybe it's that you're going to be parenting some children alone that you didn't expect to be parenting alone. Maybe it's that you're going to be caring for your own parents, caring for the people that, that cared for you. But now you're the caregiver. And you're trying to figure out how to do this. Maybe you're rebuilding your career. Maybe you're moving to a new, a new place or you've just moved here and you're rebuilding new relationships, starting your life over from scratch and all of these things are troubling. In fact, when Jesus speaks to you, why are you troubled? What you wanna do is look back at him and say, what do you think, Jesus? Why do you think I'm troubled? But I think Jesus asks you and me this question, not so much that we would give him an answer. But I think he asked us this question so that we would hear the sound of his voice. So that we would be reminded of the presence of a risen savior in the room with us. So that we would be surprised by him and that realize with him in the room, with him in the room surprising us with his presence, that we have someone who is going to walk through whatever season we're in or about to go in, that we have someone, the risen Savior, who's going to be walking through it with us. And by hearing the sound of his voice, maybe that whatever it is that troubles us might feel just a little bit less troublesome because of a resurrected Jesus. Why do you doubt? Why do doubts rise in your mind? For several of you here or maybe watching online, the answer is obvious because the, the story of a resurrected person is just that. It sounds like a fairy tale. It's something that feels good, that you say, hey, good for you or for the rest of you for believing this. If that gives you hope, if that helps you live with, 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 more, with more positivity, whatever it may be. But for you, the, the idea of anything coming back from the dead just doesn't line up with your experience of the world. And, and let's be honest, if this was hard for people 2,000 years ago who were experiencing it firsthand, supposedly, how much harder is it going to be for you and me 2,000 years ago to believe? Who, who wouldn't have doubts? And if that's you, that's where you find yourself, 
I just want to make sure that today does not pass without you hearing one follower of Jesus tell you that your doubts are legitimate. Because you are not going to just believe something on a whim or because someone told you so. Because when you have doubts, it shows that you're actually thinking about something. And so your doubts matter. And I don't want to dismiss you or make it feel illegitimate because of these doubts, because Jesus didn't either. Jesus never dismissed doubts. Jesus did not consider your doubts illegitimate. And so why would we do the same thing? This is why we spent really over a month earlier this year in a series talking all about the importance of doubt and how doubt gives us a greater, deeper, more meaningful faith and life and experience of who God is. And maybe for you, if these doubts are big and prevalent in your life, maybe this is an invitation just to go back and to dig up one of these sermons from earlier this year and to see maybe if there is a God, maybe your doubts deserve one more step, maybe a little bit more diligence in saying maybe these doubts actually could be a way that you could, if there is a God, experience something about him. For others of you, your doubt may not be in a resurrected Jesus, but just because you believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead doesn't make it any easier sometimes to believe that he is all of the things that he said he is. That maybe you're doubting Jesus' love. Or that he's as powerful as he says he is. Or forgiving or accepting. Or that he has a purpose for you like he said he did. That maybe for you, the Jesus who once felt so near doesn't anymore. And it could be the circumstances of life, the busyness of life, maybe God or the church or a pastor or someone in your life disappointed you. You may not even know, but you just know that there was a time when Jesus felt more present and now he doesn't. And what I've learned is that when Jesus feels absent, doubt feels more present. And it puts me in a place where I just don't quite know what to do. And if that's where you find yourself, this is when I think Jesus asks us that important but strange question of, do you have anything to eat? And it's not a request for food. It's an invitation to a real relationship. That Jesus took something that was so normal, that was so mundane, that you think about the number of, of meals that Jesus would have shared with all of these followers and friends of his. And when, and when he shows up, he uses this very thing to help them experience him again. Something as simple as a piece of food. There was a season in my faith that was an especially dry season, and I was sharing this with a friend, kind of feeling defeated by it, because I just didn't know what to do or, or what, where to go, what to do about it. My friend looked at me, and he just said, Brad, what's a time in your life when you felt like Jesus was more present with you than he is right now? And I thought about some of those seasons, and, and one of them early, early in my life and faith was just, just being outside, just being in nature, just being on a trail or, or being you know, immersed in the trees around me. And he said, if that's where you felt the presence of Jesus, go do that. Go on a hike, find a creek, sit in front of a body of water, get in a kayak. And wherever it was that you experienced the presence of Jesus before, no matter how normal or mundane, go do that. Pull out your guitar and play it loudly. Sit at the piano. If you used to journal and that was a way for you to commune with God, do it again. Read your Bible. If you've experienced the love of God as you served others and you looked into the eyes of people who were different from you, but it reminded you of how loved the people of this world are, and that was your experience of Jesus back then, why it would keep you from going back and having that same experience. 
wherever it was that Jesus manifested his presence and his closeness to you. Go do that. And so at some point in this room 2,000 years ago, the friends and followers probably found the ability to speak again. Because notice, no one else was speaking in this passage. It was just Jesus. And we don't know what they said. We're just left to kind of presume and imagine. But I imagine they had lots of questions still for Jesus. And maybe Jesus gave them an answer. But maybe in between the bites of this, this fish that he was eating, he offered them more questions. Each question provoking more discovery. Each question disarming them creating a connection, a relationship. Each question helping them encounter and make sense of the risen Jesus who had come back to them, overcoming sin and death just the way that he said he would. And I think that's what he wants to do for you and me too, with this room, here now. See, Luke finishes his gospel, the last couple verses, and he says that Jesus led them to Bethany and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. And so they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. And they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. And I think it's fitting that in these final verses and this encounter with the resurrected Jesus, probably still with questions and doubts on their mind, twice we see them worshiping and praising God. It shows us that we don't have to have Jesus figured out to worship him. In fact, if we do, he's probably not worth worshiping. <laughs> but Jesus, the resurrected Lord and Savior, is inviting us to come and experience him as we sing truths to him about who he is. And maybe for you, the place that you've experienced the presence of Jesus is in a room just like this, in a service very similar to this. And even if you don't feel like you can worship or you should worship or like you deserve to worship or you belong here, it's a time when maybe you can just listen to the voices of people around you singing these words on your behalf and letting their faith fill in some of the gaps of your own. And so that's when I invited the band to come back out and, and as we wrap up this series, as we wrap up this Sunday, that we can have a few moments to worship our resurrected King. So if you would stand and let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you did the impossible. You did the unbelievable. Lord, you stepped into a room that was filled with grief and confusion. You stepped into a room that was filled with regret and anger. Lord, you stepped into a world that was in need and you, just, you didn't just live here. You didn't just love us. You didn't just die for us, but you came back to life. And as hard as that may be to believe, even though it may raise more questions for us than it does answers, Lord, we come to you now and we proclaim that you are all that you said you were, all that you said you are, even if we're still trying to figure out what that means. And it's in your name and your power that we pray and sing, amen.